Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures in government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We this week begin divided government in the post-Trump era, in which the principal challenge to our politics and society generally is that one political party remains committed to the big lie and a nihilist antipathy to the very concept of federal rule. In the wake of the spectacle that was Kevin McCarthy's protracted struggle to become Speaker, McCarthy left no doubt of his embrace of a bomb-throwing vitriolic antagonism to the White House and the Democratic Party. With the Freedom Caucus now clearly operating as the power center of the party, the House passed a rules package that guarantees a bitter and wasteful program of investigations of anyone named Biden and passe topics such as the origins of COVID and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Republican spite and tantrum agenda got a major shot in the arm in the form of the revelation that a few caches of classified documents from his tenure as vice president have turned up in Biden's residence and a former office. The MAGA GOP was quick to assert that Biden's conduct mirrored Trump's obstruction in the Mar-a-Lago scandal that has the former president at the precipice of a federal indictment. Aided by the administration's self-inflicted wounds in its handling of the revelations, the episode took on the proportions of a Washington-style scandal that by week's end seemed to force Merrick Garland's hand to appoint a special counsel to investigate, as he has done for the Trump documents investigation. Meanwhile, revelations about the brazen and seemingly endless stream of lies from newly elected Republican Representative George Santos led to calls from some Republicans for his resignation. While apologizing for, quote, embellishing my resume, close quote, a euphemism for his spectacular series of complete falsehoods, Santos dug in and vowed to remain in office and aided by the support of McCarthy, who again displayed his situational ethics and tolerance of anything that brings him and the party power. To make sense of the congressional chaos and its potential ripple effects throughout the federal government, we're really pleased to welcome three of the country's most prolific and respected experts on the strange ways of Capitol Hill. And they are... Jackie Alemany, congressional investigations reporter for the Washington Post, where she previously founded and co-authored the Early 202, the Post's flagship morning newsletter. Before that, Jackie covered the Trump White House for CBS and followed the 2016 campaign trail as a digital journalist. She is an on-air contributor to NBC News and MSNBC and has been working the new House majority and the January 6th committee stories like nobody's business. Thanks very much for joining, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me, Harry. I was going to say like nobody else, except there is one other person who's covered it with equal industry. That would be Luke Broadwater, a congressional reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. He began his career at the Baltimore Sun covering the Maryland State House. Must be a lot of good stories there. And Baltimore City Hall, where he won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for local reporting, as well as a George Polk Award for political reporting. Luke, thanks very much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. And the always estimable Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and a prolific author. He co-wrote the bestseller, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Norm Ornstein, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Harry. I'm just disappointed you didn't mention my Nobel Peace Prize, Academy Award, and multiple Olympic gold medals. It's, it's true. All right. Let's start with the story that dominated the week, drowning out what otherwise might have been. It was another sort of solid stretch for the administration. So the week starts with the report that some classified documents turned up at 
Biden's office that he established at the University of Pennsylvania after his vice presidency, and the story built through the week, reaching a crescendo with the appointment by Merrick Garland of a special counsel, a hard-nosed Trump U.S. attorney, to investigate possible criminal conduct. What do we know about these dozen or so documents, where they turned up, what kinds of questions or concerns do their discovery serve up? I'm going to take this because I have the whole soapbox about this. The only thing that these two stories have in common, the fact that both Biden and Trump had to return materials to the National Archives that were marked classified, is the fact that the National Archives has been under-resourced and underfunded for many years, and that the Presidential Records Act is a huge, sweeping law that allows a lot to, I think, sort of slip through the cracks. But otherwise, these two examples, and Biden's example in particular, are very different. And as one source of the archives told me, Biden's way of handling this, returning the classified materials as soon as they were discovered, was the textbook way of how to handle finding classified information that was accidentally taken versus Trump's knowing and and willing, deliberate attempts multiple false assurances, and essentially a years-long struggle between Trump and the National Archives to return these classified materials. Yeah, the only even factual overlap is the turning up of classified documents where they shouldn't have been. Nobody says otherwise. Do we have any kind of sense, including from your the reporting you just referenced, Jackie, of how frequent or infrequent this is? I've talked to people over the last week who say, you know what, it really happens all the time. We've known of different instances where it has. And that would seem to be pretty important and would make at least the Biden scenario even more kind of plain vanilla and unexceptional, unsinister. How odd and rare is it that docs turn up? No, this does happen all the time. It usually happens more often with senior level officials And the only time this comes to a criminal level is, again, when prosecutors can prove that there is some knowing and willful attempt to steal these documents. I don't have an example off the top of my head, but all of the people I've spoken with at the archives say that this does inevitably happen. Most transitions in general are chaotic. The Biden transition, while not as chaotic as the Obama transition, where Biden was the vice president, was still chaotic in the sense that they weren't anticipating Trump would win. And that that month between the two months, basically, between Trump's victory and Biden and Obama leaving office were a little more chaotic than, I think, previous presidencies. But at the end of an administration, normally what's supposed to happen is the top aides working for Biden go through all of his files. They separate the personal from the presidential because under the PRA, There are personal items and personal folders that can be taken home with the vice president or the president. And then once those are separated, the General Services Administration takes everything that's personal, takes them to wherever Biden wants them to be, and then everything else is transferred to the National Archives. And there are hundreds and thousands and millions of pieces of paper that ultimately circulate through an eight-year-long presidency that it is it's bound to happen that something accidentally end up where it's not supposed to be. The question is, how is it then handled? And that's my sense, too. I've been at the ends of a couple administrations on top of everything else. People want the hell out of there. And it's just not a time of great diligence and in industry. So that makes it seem all the more benign or pedestrian. Nevertheless, Garland appoints a special counsel. So why did he do it? And was it the right decision? Well, I'll uh, step in on that at least to start. Although I do have to say that if this had just been with Biden, 12 documents found at the UPenn Biden Center office, I think it would have faded much more quickly. The fact that two months after this, they find a couple more in his uh, house in Delaware and one in the garage, for which it seems to me you cannot easily explain why the White House didn't immediately step in and search for everything. That just makes it a much bigger PR problem. It doesn't take away from what Jackie was saying about the relatively benign element of this for Biden. But if you're sitting in uh, Merrick Garland's shoes, first this emerges and 
you know you're going to have to have an absolutely pristine person look into it to begin with. So he chooses a U.S. attorney from Chicago who was a Trump appointee. And then, at least from what Garland said, he recommended a special counsel. Now, there may be things about this we don't know, and that may be a part of it. But I think, Harry, you hit on it in a piece you wrote in the L.A. Times. If you're Garland and you believe or expect or know that an indictment of Donald Trump is forthcoming for obstruction of justice and perhaps other charges out of the way they handle things at Mar-a-Lago, and you decline and you don't have behind you a Trump U.S. attorney who says, there's nothing here, forget about it, you have very little choice. The question that I would have is, why would you pick somebody who is a pretty hardline movement conservative, not a career Justice Department person, to do this? And obviously, it's bending doubly or triply backwards to try and show that this is going to be done without any fear or favoritism, but it's tricky business. I mean, even if you believe, and everybody who knows uh, Bob Hur is certified that he is an absolutely fair guy. I'm old enough to remember when Ken Starr was viewed as an absolutely fair guy. So, you know, independent councils tend to take on a life of their own, and you never know where an inspector Javert is lurking underneath the surface. I just want to follow up on a couple of those points. That is really true. And there's legions of stories of, well, there's certainly, you know, half a dozen independent or special counsels just all of a sudden wandering here and there and whole different kinds of potential criminal activities turn up. Now, this is a guy who also has a lot of DOJ experience, and maybe that was something that commended him to Garland. But it does seem to me that this distinction of like, oh, but he's a hard-nosed movement conservative Rehnquist clerk versus a regular prosecutor will likely be lost on the general public, especially because as soon as this guy's appointed, and he really is a movement conservative, he was already being painted as a raving Democrat because Chris Ray hired him or whatever. So it's not, I think when you calculate these things from either Biden or Garland's point of view, nothing's going to quiet the sort of war drums. It's not a question of sort of merits or facts. Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting to watch is, is the House Republicans' reaction to this. Yeah. Almost all of them are saying something like this, we didn't want a special counsel, it's going to interfere with our investigation, it's going to make our work harder. And so what is that really saying? If they believe there was a crime to be prosecuted here, they would be cheering on the special counsel, right? The fact that they're like, this is not good for us for our legislative investigation, which can't bring crimes, but could you know, embarrass Biden and bring out negative facts or something. To me, that's that's very telling that they view this much more as like a, a tool to use in a political fashion than they truly believe there was like a very bad crime here that needed to be investigated. And the other thing, I, I covered her in Baltimore, and he was known really as a, a crime fighter and very focused on public corruption. But everybody he prosecuted was a Democrat, mm. every single one. And some of them was for things that some of the Democrats felt were kind of small ball. Like there was one guy who was like $15,000, not huge sums of money sometimes. And they, you know, everyone agreed like he was a by the book prosecutor. But in terms of what they chose to focus on that office, there was not a single Republican prosecution during his tenure. Now, of course, the Baltimore's the biggest city and it's all Democrats elected there. But there was a state government and there's lots of Republicans elected across the state. So once these things get going, who knows what people find, right? Yeah, they get a life of their own, right? There could be some small thing he finds somewhere, and, you know, who knows? Ask Webb Hubble or, or Michael Sussman. That, that's really interesting that, by and large, the House Republicans are a bit deflated. Or yeah, they were not cheering this on yesterday. Yeah, of course today. Conversely, so is the White House, given the hand they were dealt, are they happy about this, would you say? They're deferring questions now. They are saying it's in the hands of the special counsel. We're cooperating. This was just a mistake. And we're cooperating. They're trying to be this very above board in their public statements. 
in some ways he kind of had to do this, right? Like mm-hmm. what's the ultimate conflict is investigating your own boss, right? So it, it does make a lot of sense politically to, to assign this special counsel. Does the decision as a practical matter hamstring either Jack Smith or Garland and in any way make less likely the bringing of charges against Trump in the Mar-a-Lago case, or are they two, you know, complete islands here? I don't think they're islands, and I I actually think it makes it more likely that we're going to see a prosecution of Trump. Interesting. If you know or believe that an indictment is forthcoming, there is no way you can avoid choosing a special counsel, and especially a really tough-minded special counsel, in the Biden matter even if there's nothing there that would suggest the necessity of doing so. If you pick a special counsel in this case, and then there's no indictment brought against Trump or the people around Trump, then it looks really not quite so good. So I suspect that Jack Smith has been communicating with the attorney general, even though he's making his own independent decisions. Which is fine. He's supposed to, right? Remember Rosenstein and Mueller, etc. Absolutely appropriate. And the ultimate decision of indictment rests with the attorney general, but he's already said that he would give wide leeway to the views of an independent counsel. I got to believe he knows something and that that's part of the motivation for acting as quickly as he acted. And a part of that is, it's not just the broader politics of dealing with Biden. Merrick Garland got into this wanting to restore the reputation of his beloved Justice Department after he believed accurately that the previous two attorneys general under Trump had devastated the reputation of the Justice Department. So this is a way of doing so. But now what do you think on this possible hamstringing question? I appreciate your point of view, Norm, because what I've been hearing all week, at least from some of the lawyers on Trump's legal team, is the opposite. And obviously, they are biased and have an interest here, but they feel like at the end of the day, you know, the Department of Justice does in some respect, if there is some sort of indictment that ultimately lands, they do need some support in the court of public opinion. And that this completely erases that because as you're seeing the way that this like week has played out, it's hard to communicate nuance to the American people. And I think a lot of people were already confused about why the Department of Justice was pursuing these charges against Trump so seriously. And it is incumbent on us to really, I think, describe that in detail, even though it is sort of can come across as, I guess, pedantic and and boring. But the Trump lawyers are hoping that this essentially you know, muddies the waters for the Department of Justice and that they're going to push all the way that, and, and equate these things and, and say that they're essentially the same and that there's a double standard and that the Department of Justice has treated Trump unfairly and they're taking kitty gloves to Biden. But in that vein, that that's just, it's not true. They're two completely different scenarios. Again, there was a whole entire year's worth of the National Archives trying to get these documents back from the former president. He denied it. Then Trump ultimately returned some documents. Then there was a lot of back and forth. Trump's lawyers provided false assurances that he had returned everything. Then Trump sent someone to actually move the classified documents. That's why there was ultimately a search warrant that was executed. And in this case of Biden, they found a very limited number, much smaller volume of documents, returned them right away, have been completely compliant. I mean, now, you know, the Trump legal team is playing ball with the Department of Justice. They have, you know, in recent months, completed additional searches of other Trump properties. But this is a a recent posture from the Trump people. You know, just to follow, I did notice that Jack Smith is still pushing to get the Trump lawyers to appear before him, the ones who did the other searches which to me would suggest there's some question of credibility. Of course, before that, we had the Trump lawyers certify that all the documents had been returned when they hadn't. Right. And nobody wants to be the guy to certify anymore for Trump. Right. But one other point, which is I've expected an indictment, but I don't expect a conviction because it strikes me the venue will have to be in Florida. Even before this, it would be damn hard to find a jury that doesn't have at least one person 
who would say, hey, the guy could shoot somebody in broad daylight on Fifth Avenue and he's still innocent as far as I'm concerned. So it's tougher to bring case in, uh, with some of the charges on the insurrection just because you have to have you know, at least some sense that he knew that what he was saying was false. But that would be brought in Washington, a very different jury pool. I'll just put my lawyer's hat on briefly and say, I think of the four charges that were referred, if those are the ones DOJ is considering, there are some that would require Florida venue and others that wouldn't. But I do want to echo what Jackie said. It is night and day. Any Anybody recognizes that immediately. And the press has done a decent job, I think, of trying to say it. But at the very first hour of revelation, uh, I think it was Josh Hawley comes out and says, the Sinus Astounding symmetry. And we have, you know, McCarthy said, where is the search here? And of course, as you laid out, Jack, the predicate for the search was months and months of really jerking them around and probable cause to believe there was more stuff there. So the complete opposite. So on the one hand, there is this nine day. On the other, you know, it's going to be the talking point. I want to go back to what you were just talking about, Luke, because, you know, apparently some House R's are chagrined because they want at it. What's their hope and plan? And is it actually blunted by having a criminal investigation or will they just do it simultaneously? Well, they believe it's blunted. What, what is interesting to watch is there's all these different Republicans sort of competing to be who's going to be the top investigator on this subject. Like Jim Comer's committee oversight has already been sending out letters. Then today, you know, Jim Jordan's committee is now sending out letters about it. There seems to be some jockeying who gets to be the Biden investigator on this. You know, Comer told me and he's told others that he thinks that this makes his investigation harder, that he believes he will be denied documents that he otherwise could have had access to because of the special prosecutor investigation. I don't know if that's right or not. I suspect probably they weren't going to give him very much anyway of an ongoing investigation, whether it was done by, you know, Maine Justice, Merrick Garland himself or a special counsel. I don't know how accurate that is, but they believe that that stymies their efforts in some way. The other thing he said was he did not want this to interfere with his investigation of the Biden family businesses. He has tried to tie a link between address of Hunter Biden, I guess, at Joe Biden's house where these some of these documents were by the Corvette and saying that that might mean they're connected in some way. And so he's going to go down that road. And when you say he is, you mean there'll be a committee that will call, have subpoenas and have hot lights and try right. to get Hunter Biden before them, that kind of thing? What everyone tells me is Jim Comer is really focused on Biden family. That's his number one investigative goal. And so, yes, right now they haven't put out subpoenas yet. They've only sent letters, but I would expect there to be subpoenas and hearings. They have two years to do this. And they're still staffing up, switching from the minority to the majority. You know, he's pledged dozens and dozens of investigations. We're talking about Comer. At the same time, Jim Jordan's going to have this whole other committee, the Weaponization of Government Subcommittee. McCarthy told him that it would have the same resources as the January 6th committee. So that is something like 70, 80 people, if you count consultants and contractors, too. Yeah. So he can have you know, just tremendous resources to investigate almost anything that he thinks is bias or unfairness against conservatives or Republicans. Or plays well on, on TV. Yeah, I, I want to get into that a, a fair bit more. So let's just try to close out then for now, the document embroglio for both. How do you see it playing out, do you think? Norm, you were you were kind of positing about this when I talked to you previously. If you had to sort of choreograph what happens now, what would you predict? Well, I've got to believe that it's going to be a while before we get anything from her or that investigation. I also believe that it's extremely unlikely that any of it will touch Joe Biden directly. It's very yeah. unlikely that he was in the offices going through documents. This was staffers. And as in with, with all these cases, the collateral damage comes to often young, poorly paid staffers who are going to have to lawyer up and probably can't afford it. And I can imagine one or two of them, especially as Luke said, a guy who prosecutes even small cases by the book, it's possible that some low level staffer is going to end up being hit with illegal possession of a classified document or 
access by a person without classification to those documents. But that'll take a while. I would imagine, especially if we see Smith, again, continuing to try and push the Trump lawyers who were searching in other places, that doesn't suggest to me that we're going to see an indictment within the next week or two. But I would bet we will see one before very long. And don't forget, we're probably getting close to a decision by the end of the month or soon thereafter in Georgia. In Fulton County, yeah. I still think the first indictment is likely to come in Fulton County. Yeah, I've always thought Georgia was farther ahead of the Justice Department and their investigation, and they would make decisions before anyone else. Plus, we like to think that all prosecutors are not affected by politics, but Merrick Garland has to be thinking about how this looks, too. You know he's thinking about that. Like He's still a human being who has to make decisions. And I think that the Georgia prosecutor is just less less affected by like the DC scene. Like it's not as much of a concern for her. I actually take your point to be the take home, the sort of moral of what happened. And that was the op-ed that Norm was referring to. The signal feature of here is what Norm just said. There's not the slightest hint of anything that could ripen into criminal conduct on Biden's part, unless we know, you know, there's not even a sense that he had knowledge, much less intent. And that, I think, suggests that the even the appointment of the special counsel kind of departed from the letter of the law, which requires you to find that a criminal investigation is warranted. So I think it shows our, you know, choir boy judge Merrick Garland to be a little bit more savvy and Washingtonian maybe than he's been given credit for. But I also think that his big point is he's going to be Mr. Defer to other folks. And he's kind of set it up cannily, I think. I think he's going to get a recommendation to prosecute Trump from Jack Smith. And he'll say he's going along with it. I think he's going to get a recommendation from her to say there's nothing here with this big caveat of does somebody get caught up in, and Norm, your point's very well taken about the time. Does this hover for a while? He's got to choose a staff and get office. But I think Garland will eventually be in a position to say I accepted Mr. Hur's recommendation, et cetera. And so in that sense, I think he understands that he's going to look like he's deferring to professional folks, and yet the result is quite likely to be nothing in the Biden matter. And there's differences of opinions about Mar-a-Lago, but I think Smith is going to recommend it. Uh, There's a lot of reasons to think so. And for Garland to buck it then, you know, strikes me as unlikely. I have a question for you, Harry, because I've wondered, and Norm as well, is there a world in which there's some sort of like pre-prosecution agreement that results out of this just because Trump is running for president. And really, at the end of the day, the point of pressing charges against Trump is not necessarily to put him in jail, but to keep him out of public life. Yeah. Want to start there, Norm? I don't think it's out of the question that there could be some kind of a deal, but I think that's an explosive thing to do. First of all, I can't imagine Trump striking a deal on this one where he says, I'll agree never again to run for office. Among other things, he probably believes that an indictment here now would help him and that he's likely to avoid a conviction with a Florida jury, if that's what we're talking about. But I also think, again, with an eye towards politics, the pushback, if you've got something that is criminal behavior and you let the guy off the hook, you're going to get a lot of blowback on that as well. So It could happen, but I'm skeptical. I just can't see what kind of a deal they would cut with him that would work. I mean, everything here is unprecedented, but the deal, it wouldn't be letting him off the hook. It would be a conviction, and with that, the kind of uh, sensing. But first, it's probably unconstitutional. Second, if he does it, and he doesn't need to cross his fingers behind his back, he just, you know, then says, actually, I'm running anyway. And unless they can and this is a whole different can of legal worms, get the 14th Amendment provision that truly does disqualify him legally, I think it would be hard to do. And yet, it's a really good question because just as we thought about with Nixon, I think the judgment of history is maybe it was the right thing. It does seem in some perfect Solomonic world, something like that. Yeah, he doesn't have to go to jail and, you know, mess up his hair and et cetera. But the pox of Trump should be no longer upon us. 
makes overall sense, but it's hard to see with the different moving parts and especially, as Norm's saying, Trump's kind of psyche that actually happening and and sticking. Right. You see those imposed on like mayors and city council. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes yeah. you can't run again or you're, right. you're barred from holding office for 10 years. In fact, didn't it happen to someone in Maryland? I know I covered a mayor who couldn't run for until she was done her probation, and it was like right, right. You know, eight years later or something that she ran again. For lower offices, that's often the case in public corruption cases. You've just never seen it with a president before. Exactly. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we uncork the notion of drinking bottled wine versus canned wine. Yeah, wine in a can. Wine connoisseurs may stay true to the bottle, but wine canisters have adopted the untraditional packaging for its added convenience, ideal for picnics, concerts, and outdoor events, really anywhere corkscrews are scarce. And since aluminum cools faster than glass, it reduces the time it takes to chill your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. But swirling your wine in a glass does help it open up, which gives it a lot more flavor. Of course, you can always transfer your canned wine to a glass but if you're looking to experience the subtleties of a nice bottle, drinking from a glass adds a lot. There are wines more suited to the bottle, and there are those well-suited for the canned life. Crisp and sparkling whites and rosés in particular tend to fare best in cans, but bigger, bolder wines will usually benefit from a nice glass. It would seem both have their place. Still on the fence between bottles or cans? There's always wine! in a box. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, so we've talked about this a couple times, especially you, Luke. I want to get it in a more full-bodied way. So last week, McCarthy, by many people's account, gives away the store to the Freedom Caucus to finally secure his life ambition of being speaker. By the way, his first remarks after it is, we will hold the swamp accountable from the withdrawal of Afghanistan to the origins of COVID and the weaponization of the FBI. So, And then sure enough, this week, he pushes through by a, a very narrow margin this new rules package that the Freedom Caucus has basically dictated as a cost of their support. You just had a really good piece in the Times, Luke, kind of laying out the main features of the rules that have come through and the changes that they effectuate. Can you sort of give us a an overview of the new way of doing business in the House? Sure. There's two things to keep in mind. There's a written rules package, which we can see and read and got voted on. And then there's all these sort of handshake deals that took place that are not all in one place in writing that anyone can view. It's very shadowy. But the main change in the rules, the written rules, is this motion to vacate, which means basically at any time, if five members of the Freedom Caucus get angry at Kevin McCarthy and they want to throw him out of office, if the Democrats will vote for that on the floor, and I'm sure they would love to throw out Kevin McCarthy, they can do it. One person can call for the vote, and then if he has four other Republicans who will vote with it, they can kick Kevin McCarthy out. That functionally means he has to keep them happy at all times. You know, Matt Gates described it as... The House Freedom Caucus chairman is more powerful than the speaker, and we have him in a straitjacket. So it's like pretty, pretty dramatic language. That's a That's candid a, moment. Yeah, I call it a choke collar with a very short leash. <laughs> right. And a little electric buzzer. Yes. <laughs> the other thing he promised them, which is not in the rules, was that they could sit at least three members on the rules committee, which is kind of like a gatekeeper for legislation to even get on the floor. So they can have tremendous influence over, over bills right before they even get to the floor. And there's, there's a lot of other stuff in there about like a 72-hour waiting period before a vote, which I think most people think is a good idea. Yeah. There's some other less objectionable good government stuff that even some Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez think are good ideas. But 
the fact that there's going to be so much power in this sort of, I actually call them hard right because the conservatives get angry when I call them conservatives because it's really that they're, it's their extreme positions on things and yeah. their willingness to fight to the death almost that distinguishes them. I call them nihilist, really. I mean, they're yeah. proud of, yeah. of wanting this tear down the government right. program. And so they're going to be just so influential. And where it's really going to get ugly is when it's time for things like the Defense Authorization Act, the debt ceiling, like the real must-pass bills to like fund the military, fund the government so we don't default on our debts and cause a world economic meltdown. Like those things are really at risk here. And I don't think, I'm not sure people truly understand that yet because these guys are probably not going to vote for that stuff. And they have a lot of power to just kill the entire agenda and shut down the government if they want to. And I don't know how he's going to negotiate them out of that. If he can, that would be a true achievement for his speakership, but he hasn't shown any ability yet to do that. Or strength or spine. Jackie, well, let me zero in on this debt limit question, which everyone was thinking about. I mean, the last time they held sway, we threatened the United States full faith and credit for the first time in our history. How do the rules interact with their ability to hold that hostage? And what do they seem to be spoiling to do with it? Yeah, so this is one of the actually unspoken rules that these very hard right defectors and anti-McCarthy detractors agreed to, which is that basically Republicans and this group of people agreed that there would be dramatic cuts in domestic spending in exchange to avoid such a dramatic economic calamity because Congress does need to increase the debt limit this year. Otherwise, as Luke said, it's going to put the country at risk of defaulting on its debt, which could cripple markets around the world. But I thought they were like, bring it on. Or is that overstated? I think there is a desire to try to avoid it since there is an understanding that this will ultimately come back and, and haunt Republicans. But if these cuts can't be reached in domestic spending and in defense spending, then there are going to be issues. The Republicans are also coming out against the omnibus and the idea of passing an appropriations bill in one giant package. They've said that they will outright reject any single legislative vehicle that appropriates trillions of dollars, even if the individual appropriations bills all fail. And Congress hasn't been able to pass these separate appropriations bills in both chambers um, since the 90s. Right. So there could be a, a lot of <laughs> fiscal calamities that these House rules are, are setting Congress up for in the coming year. Just to piggyback off that, there's two things to focus on, I think. One is these guys know because they're willing to go harder than the other side, they can use that, that debt limit as leverage to get what they want because it's so calamitous for the country and they're willing to do it and the other side isn't. So they can extract these cuts they think in this game of chicken by being like tougher than the other side. And the other thing is it's been tried before to pass all these spending bills individually, 12 of them. And it actually sounds pretty good. We should consider them all on the merits, right? But functionally it becomes almost impossible. And there's a reason why leadership has to do it in one big chunk at the end of the year. Cause that was like the only way to pass it. Which they hate. Yeah. yeah well, it sounds like a good, good government reform to do them all individually, consider them on the merits no one can do it. Like, no one has the legislative skill to do that. So, I mean, if they can, that would be amazing, but it just seems very unlikely. And it's been tried and failed so many times. Let me follow up in a couple of ways. I actually wrote a piece in October before the election in the Atlantic saying if these guys win, the debt limit is going to be the biggest catastrophe. And if you go back to 2011, there was no Freedom Caucus back then, but you had the Tea Party movement and you had the Young Guns. Kevin McCarthy, Paul Ryan, and Eric Cantor, egging them on to use the debt limit as a hostage and as a lever. And we went right up to the edge of the abyss. John Boehner brought it back. And that was the beginning of the end of his speakership. And the Freedom Caucus actually formed in 2015 because the right-wing caucus wasn't right-wing enough. When we came close but didn't go over, our credit rating was actually cut and it cost taxpayers at least 18 or $19 billion just because we came close and people were upset. The 
Tea Party people look like milk toasts compared to these guys. And Kevin McCarthy is no John Boehner, who was not exactly the strongest speaker in the history of the House either. But McCarthy is powerless to stop it. Back then, Jason Chaffetz, who was one of the bomb throwers, said, we would have taken it right over the cliff. We were serious yeah. about it. There are a hundred Jason Chaffetzes now. And of course, a part of this agreement is that McCarthy has pledged he will not bring up a straightforward debt limit increase. We are, according to Janet Yellen, going to hit our debt limit in four days. She will be able to go with extraordinary measures until June or July. I will tell you that I and others tried very hard over the last two years to take this issue off the table by having, probably through reconciliation, a resolution which is ironically called the McConnell Rule, that the Treasury Secretary acting on behalf of the President can unilaterally raise the debt ceiling. Congress can pass a joint resolution to block it, but he can veto that. So effectively, you can override the veto with one-third plus one. And what I am told is that the usual suspects, Mansion and Cinema, kept it from happening. It can't happen now. And this is a huge problem. I want to add a couple of other things from this rules package. One is three-fifths vote required to raise taxes. So They've taken taxes completely off the table, obviously, and they're pledging a balanced budget, which means dramatic cuts in Social Security and Medicare, which is what they're going to demand, and they won't get them. And I don't know how we avoid something deadly serious there. And we can't leave this without noting that they've blown up the ethics process to protect Jim Jordan and his uh, colleagues, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, Scott Perry et al., from ethics charges. By, and George Santos. and yeah. yeah, although I think the others were more significant in this case yeah. than, than uh, Santos. I actually, I do feel like this headline was a little overblown this week because in the resolution, they technically can replace them, but they only have a 30-day window. Correct, yeah. yeah. The replacement of the members has to be basically approved by both parties. The whole idea in the Office of Congressional Ethics is Democrats nominate, the Speaker nominates, the uh, Minority Leader nominates, They both have to accept the others. They're not going to accept any nominees for the next 30 days, and they don't have a quorum, so they won't be able to do a staff. So it's it effectively it kills it for a long time. All right. Closeout question. What, if anything, can the Biden administration, the Democrats in the Senate do to counteract some of the more, you know, extreme prospects we've been discussing? Do they have any cards to play here? Litigate. Litigate? I mean, you know, there's some uh, legal argument that you can't, under the 14th Amendment, you simply can't uh, default on the debt this way. But declaratory judgment action, (laughs) the Supreme Court. But is is that right? That's about all they've got in their hand? Well, I was more actually referring to the subcommittee on investigating Uh the weaponization of the federal government Mm -hmm. and the carve out that members of this committee can now investigate ongoing criminal investigations. And I think that's probably a non-starter based on, you know, the Linder letter and other pre-existing rules. That will not happen. I'm here to tell you. They'll, They'll have to sue and they'll lose. I don't, though, have a legislative defense for the debt limit, Luke, do you? (laughs) I do think with with the weaponization committee, like, there is an opportunity for the minority there to do something because they are going to be on it and they have their their five. Right, five Democrats and out of 13 members, right? Yeah, and so, and and that mandate is pretty wide. It's like bias anywhere in the world, essentially, anywhere in the government. And so you could see some world where they do some sort of minority report or they offer like cross-examinations or bring up their own lines of inquiry. So it will be interesting to see exactly who they put on that committee and choose to lead it and how hard they go. Because, you know, obviously, unlike the January 6th committee, they'll have an opportunity here to really do their own thing in the minority. Yeah, no way are Democrats making the mistake of, of pulling a McCarthy and pulling their members off of this. Although I suspect that Hakeem Jeffries will pick Democrats and McCarthy will try and block two or three of them. So we, we still have a Fandango to go there. I do think if Biden in the end wants to and has to play hardball, Larry Tribe has written something about the 14th Amendment. You can make the case that it would be unconstitutional for him as president, violating his oath to let the country default 
and he's directing Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, to create $3 trillion platinum coins, which is, you know, one of these things that seemed utterly outlandish before, but may not be now. And of course, since Jim Jordan basically defied a, a subpoena in the past, they have some ample grounds and precedent for basically going against all the subpoenas, or a lot of them, that come forward, including, as we know, they're going to issue subpoenas to Democrats who were on the uh, January 6th committee. They're going to investigate the committee that did the investigation, and it's going to be the ones who were investigated doing that investigation. It's just bizarre. The ones who were investigated but refused to answer subpoenas. I've said this is like a, a Congress allowing Al Capone to investigate Elliot Ness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. On this too, so much more to come. Let's take three minutes to discuss the talented Mr. George Santos. There have been lies out there, but this guy is just a breaks all records, as best I can tell, one of the most flagrant and comprehensive fabricators in U.S. political history. It says a lot, I think, that McCarthy stood by him. Let me just serve up. Can he survive to serve his term? You know, there are a lot of daggers out for him. How do you see this playing out? Anybody? There's a divergence of incentives here for the various Republicans. In New York, they just had an election where they had a lot of moderates win in swing seats. And their incentive is to look responsible, like a party that people could vote for in a swing district. And so George Santos is just anathema. McCarthy's focus is on retaining that super slim majority that voted for him. And he cannot afford to lose one vote. And if they were to somehow try to force Santos out or vote to expel him, that seat could easily flip to the Democrats, right? Right. I mean, he Santos flipped it and by a narrow margin. Yeah, what he's decided is he's okay with a fraud that votes for him. Exactly. As simple as that. Big and the, the, the Republicans right. up in New York and Nassau County, et cetera, are not okay with a fraud that votes for McCarthy. They want someone who's a real legitimate person. And the leadership of the House Republicans is okay with it. They could vote to expel him if they wanted to, but they would have to have the political will to do it. And it doesn't seem like they're going to do that. Of course, he could get tagged for something real. Jackie mentioned the possibility of a second crime down in Brazil. My prosecutorial antennas say, look seriously at this $700,000 that he supposedly loaned. to. He didn't have $700,000. So what happened there? Does that get exposed? And is he really looking at, you know, the pokey as opposed to just not being a member? No, I was going to say, I think indictments are, are likely to be forthcoming. A couple of other points following on what Luke said. This majority is even thinner than it appears on the surface. Vern Buchanan, who is a Republican from Sarasota, wealthy guy, thought he was in line to chair the Ways and Means Committee. And McCarthy pushed him aside for a younger McCarthy loyalist. He's not happy. It's possible that he could resign in the middle of the term, and it would take a while to get a, another person in place. Then you've got Santos and I was bemused a little bit to see a report uh, in the newsletter Puck that there were all kinds of people coughing and hacking in the uh, cloakrooms when they were up for these four days of votes because everybody had to be there. And you probably had a bunch of them with COVID. I'm sure the Republicans didn't get tested. A lot of them have never been vaxxed. That's for woke liberals getting vaxxed. Right? Yeah. Where they revoked the rule for proxy voting, I just kind of laughed and I tweeted out several times. Just wait till they have six or 10 members out for weeks with COVID or maybe some, in some cases because they're unprotected, you know, uh, dying. And that majority could go before the two years is up. And it could go for weeks if you have people who are incapacitated. So McCarthy is going to try and hang on to Santos as long as he can. And I think the only thing that pulls him out of there is an indictment and maybe an extradition to Brazil where they're pretty serious about this. But I think you're absolutely right, Harry. The money coming in, probably some of it from foreign sources. We already know there's at least one. But it appears to be coming from companies that had no business giving it, and probably that's illegal. I think he is more likely than not to be indicted before this term is up. If justice comes for George Sanders, it'll be from law enforcement before it comes from Congress. In yeah. yeah, yeah. Law enforcement writ large, though, I mean, won't be ethics committee, but the Federal Election Commission could have something to say about this, too. Not if you know the FEC. <laughs> well, all right. And all of this, of course, will combine with politics. It doesn't immediately expel him, but it makes the drum no. beats louder, et cetera. Yeah. 
Man, we're out of time except for one minute for our Talking Five feature. And let's just dovetail off what everyone's just been talking about. So rules of the road, take five words or fewer to answer the following. What's the next slide to come that will learn the next shoe in the huge closet to come out of uh, George Santos? Well, he already claimed to be a volleyball champion yeah. at a college <laughs> right. he did not attend. So I'll say he was also a volleyball All-American. I don't know. NBA draft pick. There we go. Yeah. There you go. There's no way he's 34. Why haven't we oh, talked? Why hasn't anyone good. talked about that? Very Where's good. his birth certificate? Uh, that he's a Democrat. And I'll go with the old prosecutorial bromide. Follow the money. We are sadly out of time. Thank you very much to Jackie Alemani, Luke Broadwater, and Norm Ornstein. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting daily video content breaking down the legal news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with New York Times reporter David Yaffe Bellany about the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX case. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. You'll also, by the way, be able to attend monthly Q&A sessions live with me. Our next one, I think, is coming up in about a week. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner. David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Fran Cagle. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>